2: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 236 being recorded on Monday, September 14th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason,
1: and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Today on the show, we are going to do a deep dive into one of our favorite topics in retail and e-commerce, brands going direct. To help us uh, navigate through this, we have a really exciting guest on the show. He goes by Digitally Native without an E, and we're going to have to get the story on that, Uh, so Digitally Native um, on Twitter, Uh, and then outside of the Twitter sphere, he goes by Nate Pullen. Nate's based out of Austin, and he cut his Digitally Native vertical brand teeth at brands such as Bonobos, Outdoor Voices, and more. He's also the founder of Digitally Native Consulting. Nate, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Excited.
2: We are excited to chat with you, Nate. Um, And I know you've listened to the show. We always like to start things off by kind of getting a a little bit of background about how you came to the industry. So can you you tell us how you found yourself in the the digitally native commerce space?
0: Totally. Um, So I spent the last 15 years in retail. Um, I started the early part of my career working for startups, and this really sort of predated the um, proper e-commerce era. Um, and worked my way through retailers, um, worked for F.A.S. Schwartz and Toys R Us, and ultimately landed about 11 years ago in the brand sphere, uh, specifically in apparel. So I worked for Michael Kors for four years uh, through their IPO. And then I was sort of in my late 20s in New York City. Andy and the team at Bonobos had been at it since 2007. This was 2009. Um, And I decided to join uh, Bonobos and really take a stab at this sort of whole... Um, building brands on the internet phase. Um, I felt like that was the future then, and I still feel that way. Um, And so I spent four years at Bonobos and and also two years at Outdoor Voices, um, and then most recently a stint at the Black Tux. Um, And then, you know, in between some of those stints also consulted with a number of direct-to-consumer and digitally native brands and really, you know, through that whole journey, just got exposed to the business, um, the customer centricity, and you know the opportunity that exists, and and really, quite frankly, have just kind of nerded out um, on the business, and it's something that I'm passionate about, both in terms of what you know my day to day is, but also you know when I cl- when I close the books each day, I'm still thinking about it, still crunching on these issues, and still very much sort of part of the community. So it's it's been a big part of the last I would say decade of my life.
2: That's awesome. Uh, we're eager to dive into a bunch of those topics, but I, I have to tell you, I feel like we've already been duped. I, I feel like you, you you started your retail career pre-digital, and yet you call yourself digitally native.
0: I know. It's uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer, um, and that's kind of my secret weapon, I think, that I actually um, have a pretty rich background in wholesale and retail. And so, you know, um, a lot of what I sort of publish from a content perspective also Folds in some of that perspective. Um, but, you know, uh, my true love is, is e commerce and direct to consumer for sure.
1: I'm excited to learn you get your start in toys, and I'll try not to derail the whole show talking about Star Wars toys, as uh, Jason knows that I, I like to do.
0: Well, it's um, so funny that you mentioned that, Jason, because I um, when I first went to New York City, I grew up in Maine originally, and I made a trip to New York City, and one of the stops, this was like sort of an eighth grade trip, one of the stops was F.A.R. Schwartz. And they, were, they had built an entire floor of Star Wars toys and Lego because it was, I think it was around the time of, I guess it was episode four. Um, and it was just the coolest thing that I had ever seen in my entire life. And so I ended up working at FAO because it was my dream job. I was like, I need to come back here, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later and work for, for uh, this brand and this business. Um, so I, I do have sort of a Star Wars origin story there.
1: Very cool, awesome! And are you a Star Wars fan, or you just just like the display?
0: You know what? I'm a fan of the original series. Uh, huh. I, I sort of, to be honest, I stopped. I think um, on episode five. I haven't seen the most recent ones, um, but I do have a five and a half year old son, and so I feel like we're going to go back through the entire and infol- or the entire um, film series, um, and I'm excited about that for him.
1: Awesome! Yeah, we can talk about the right order um, later in the show. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Jason just went through this, so we we
2: have a lot of experience. I've been un- Uncle Scott, Uncle Star Wars. Scott has been trying to help with this whole thing. Yeah, Scott has been a big help. The only problem is my son now likes Scott way better than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's jump
1: into brands. So one of the things I wanted to talk about at the top is Jason and I present uh, about these topics all the time. And we've kind of, because we we do it uh we present together most times, we kind of use a common vocabulary. And then I noticed you and web have kind of a different vocabulary. So we were talking about it in Twitter and I honestly forget the genesis of this, but you started this really cool, uh, you just kind of started saying, well, let's build a little taxonomy. So you started this taxonomy project, which I have found super helpful. Uh, And then we, a couple other people glommed on and had some interesting insights. Um, Talk us through uh, that and, and what kind of inspired it.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I've actually sort of been um, in the on the back burner trying to sort of like organize notes and really create some sort of knowledge base around direct-to-consumer. Um, and it really started with the desire of writing a book, but then I quickly dismissed that sort of concept just because this industry is moving so fast that a book quickly becomes, at least in my opinion, becomes sort of like an artifact and not a resource. Um, and so I was looking for ways to kind of like build out this, you know, Evernote or whatnot, and I stumbled upon Rome Research, which I think is actually another one of those Twitter darlings, Um, but it's really just sort of a networked note-taking tool, and I started to build out, you know, kind of my own knowledge base, and when I pick up on some of these types of conversations, whether it be Twitter or sort of, you know, back channels or whatnot, um, it's it's sort of, like, drives me to, like, get to the bottom of, you know, how would we actually organize this? So, I, I built another... Um, similar sort of exercise, but crowdsourced, like a library of, you know, but what would what would your D2C library look like? And so each time I go through this, I'm like gathering information from people who are really much smarter than I am um, and trying to like harmonize it um, into a way that's actually meaningful and useful. And so I've been doing this now for about um, 90 days. And, you know, I, I, I sort of think about the future and how long and, and the runway for this industry. And I just think, creating that value like incrementally every single day at some point will either be very valuable to me or, you know, valuable in general. Um, And so that's sort of the genesis of that, that idea. Um, And I've also sort of like subscribed to the concept of digital gardening and, you know, building a second brain. Um, And so I sort of dubbed this thing that I'm creating D to C brain. Um, And it's, you know, like I said, it's pretty robust. It's wonderful for me because I, you know, I'm immersed in this every single day. And um, the way in which we can sort of like harmonize this information is, is nonlinear. It's networked. Um, and so I can add little bits to little parts of this, this broader network of information each day um, and, and sort of come back to it and reference it. So that's sort of the genesis of the project. And I think, like I mentioned, I'm just going to continue to do it. And, and hopefully in the case like Taxonomy of Brands, it adds some degree of value to someone out there who's interested in this kind of stuff um, outside of just myself, uh, which I do find it valuable.
1: Yeah. I thought it would be helpful to talk through it. Um, and I don't know who wants to take, I'm I'm happy to take a shot at it or Jason, if you want to, or, or Nate, if you want to, so we'll, any, anyone want to take a shot at just kind of describing this taxonomy.
0: I don't have it up on my screen. So if you guys have reference to it, then I'm happy to let you guys drive.
2: Yeah. Jason, you want to, or sure? Sure, mean sure I've some- memorized it, so I'm happy. All right,
1: to. <laughs> all right, Jason, you you run at it.
2: Yeah. Um. So, like the, uh, it's a taxonomy or a, a sort of a hierarchy, and the the notion is uh, that the highest level, um, in the taxonomy is the primary distribution method. So, do you own your own distribution? Do you rely on third parties to distribute your product? Um, Underneath the owned distribution, uh, there's uh, a a couple of different models. There's a D2C brand. um, So a marquee example of that would be like Casper. Um, There's private label brands. um, That would be like uh, uh, Walbuprofen from Walgreens. Um, And there's owned brands, which would be, uh, you know, an exclusive brand that a retailer owns that's differentiated and not commodity like the private label. So that would be like uh, Cat and Jack or Oswell Home or something like that. Um, So you've got you own the distribution. You're you're either a a D to C, a private label or an own brand. And then under D to C, there would be a couple of other um, potential attributes. Uh, you could be a vertically integrated brand, which I think gets you all the way to, um, uh, you know, you 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 manu- you design and manufacture your own product that you sell through your own distribution. Um, but this first version of a vertical brand is, I'll call it, old school vertical brand. So it would be like the Gaps and Abercrombie and Fitches and sort of pre pre digital uh, vertical, fully integrated brands. Um, the next category would be the uh, Andy Dunn official digital native vertical brands. Um, so I, I, uh, I think when you wrote the taxonomy, you used Glossier as a, uh, an example. I, I feel like you have to use Bonobos since it's Andy. Um, the, uh, the next category was linear brands. Um, and uh, this was sort of audience first um, based, uh, commerce. Um, and, and so I, uh, I feel like I I'll be totally candid. I didn't completely get this one. I think this was, a uh, an argument from Will. Um, he was using barstool sports as an example. Um, in that. yeah, I
0: think this one was like sort of the intersection between media and commerce. And that's sort of, media brands were alter, ultimately going to become e-commerce brands and e-commerce brands would become media brands over the course of time. And so that the future sort of looks like that barstool uh, model where they, they build like a, a very like, um, passionate and you know, loyal audience. And then they just seek for you know, whatever different ways they can monetize that audi- audience over time. And one of, certainly one of those ways is to, to sell them physical products.
2: Cool, that totally makes sense, uh, and it's it's better when you explained it, right? And then a, a specific subset of the linear brand would be the celebrity brand and, like, Kylie Jenner cosmetics would come to mind um, Is that example. Uh, so then if you jump over to the third-party distribution, you have the uh, uh, big, first big category is uh, your sort of legacy brand. That's the, you know, traditional Um, brand that's manufacturing products that they sell through wholesale. That would be like Ralph Lauren. Um, And you've got kind of two distinct versions of that. You've got a brand that was born wholesale and still is wholesale, like uh, uh, Coca-Cola, for example. Um, And then you have brands that were born wholesale and have made a pretty extreme pivot to to D2C. And I, I feel like the poster child there is Nike um but there are others the uh under armour is like significantly moved to d2c uh, vf brands which is like north face and vans has moved significantly to d2c so that's a a subset of the of the sort of hybrid legacy brands um and then you have these marketplace native brands um so these are guys that were born um assuming they would use a third-party distribution, but the primary third-party distribution they had in mind was a marketplace like Amazon or Alibaba. Um, a great example there is uh, Anchor, the, the cables and charging accessory uh, company that's done so well on Amazon and uh, so well in terms of my personal wallet share for some reason. I, I have some weird fetish with Anchor cables. Um, and so if I'm remembering right, because obviously I don't have this in front of me as a reference, um, that, I think those, those, that's the main taxonomy.
0: Yeah, so I think that like the impetus behind this sort of taxonomy, it, it really explores the tension between distribution, obviously like owned and third party, and the relationship with the customer. So if we think about it in the purest sense, you've got a digitally native vertical brand. That's both producing you know, all the way upstream from a supply chain perspective all, and then delivering you know, through their own channel all the way downstream to the consumer. And in my opinion, you know, that's sort of like the, the happiest path for you know, gro- long-term gross margin creation um, because you own all of those sort of like elements and you control the elements of production and distribution. And you also own the first-party data with your customer. Um, and so I think, I think of like the industry as, as swinging towards this model and the, what's hitting us and the, what's sort of like uh, taking oxygen out of the bubble or out of the room is, you know, all of the like, all of the costs of doing business with respect to e-commerce. And so you've got, you know, customer acquisition costs, which you guys have talked at length about. Um, you've got variable costs of fulfillment. You've got subscription costs of technology um, and, and you've got this sort of like hoard of data that you have to sift through to be able to make good decisions. Whereas, you know, the legacy brand model was, you know, produce it overseas, move it through a facility out to points of distribution and sell it to the customer. And we don't, we're agnostic to who that customer is we just want them to walk by our store and come in and purchase something. Um, and so that's just, you know, that's sort of the, the distance that the industry has traveled. And, Um, I think exploring each one of those sort of like elements underneath the distribution channels starts to give us like a more robust view of like how brands are competing and what the options are that exist, because these brands are rational and they're going to find that oxygen. They're going to find the happy path um, relative to their business. And so breaking these big pieces down into this, this sort of like component parts is so valuable because I think a lot of the sort of a lot of the tension that's drawn and a lot of maybe the angst around DTC or the forecasting around DTC is you know, the conversation is really guided as though these, all of these things are one big moving object. But the reality is there's a tremendous amount of nuance in each one of these models and each one of these businesses. And so to understand them, we actually have to get to that level of detail. Um, so at least that for me, that's sort of the what we're trying to kind of tease out when we're we're talking about this taxonomy and talking about the different ways that brands can grow.
1: Yeah. And it's helpful to have a common vocabulary because um, Jason and I use own brand a lot. And then people are like, you mean private label? And we're like, no, it's a little different in that, you know, this isn't the old Roy dog food we're talking about here. These are these are brands unto themselves like like uh, uh, Echo is and a, a Kindle are like owned brands, right? So th- those are not the same thing as, oh, I'm going to knock off some dog food or, or you know, a can of beans or something like that.
2: Side note so, for our right. most advanced listener, listeners, Scott just dropped an awesome legacy Walmart reference right there. <laughs> that was Sam Walton's dog. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, and
1: then... Chase, anything else on the taxonomy? Uh
2: no, I again I, I think it's super useful to think about the structure and it got kind of crowdsourced and there was some good like dialogue about like, you know, what what's the order of precedence? Like what what is, you know, what are more important and should be higher on the on the um hierarchy. And I thought like that was it was a helpful exercise for my own thinking. Um one thing that did occur to me, and I don't feel like it should change the taxonomy in any way, but just an uh to me, an interesting observation. Um, this is mostly focused on the the primary business model that the that these various entities would use to make money. But the uh, I feel like it is true that there are a bunch of um, primarily third party distribution companies. I'll I'll pick uh, legacy brands for a second uh, that are doing d2c right now but probably not for the purpose of take of of earning significant share or making money they're probably doing it for a a, a test and learn customer intimacy data collection project so I, like for example um pepsico has launched a few direct to consumer sites for like snacks.com and shoppantry.com like, I don't think they'll ever have meaningful share of, of the individual bags of free to lay chips um, on that site. They probably launched it as some kind of learning environment. And conversely, I would argue Casper has dabbled in some retail distribution deals, but usually not with the intent of wholesaling their product or having a traditional wholesale relationship, but, you know, more as a marketing vehicle for their D2C. So it is... Yeah. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I think um, when you had referenced Glossier versus
0: Bonobos, you know, that's sort of where my mind went. Was, you know, even in the, the early days of Bonobos, we went offline, you know, I think in 2010, uh, maybe 2009. So it was pretty early in the whole D2C evolution. And we went offline with Nordstrom as a partner. And um, that was a really fruitful relationship. But I always. In terms of classification of these brands, and I totally agree, it's like really a spectrum that moves. But um, I typically define these brands by their dominant sales channel. Um, so if their dominant sales channel is pure play direct to consumer, even if they have a wholesale distribution business, or you know they're selling through affiliates or you know, whatever their their sort of secondary tertiary model is, um, you know I think that that tells us something about the business, but doesn't necessarily. Um, mean we have to shift their classification because otherwise there'd be a a zillion of these right
1: yeah yeah and i like the path to the consumer as the defining factor um because it it's kind of the most interesting part of the discussion right so where you source your stuff is eh, you know it's 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 a factor but it's not as important in my mind as your your path to the customer totally i totally agree i mean i think it's um,
0: that conversation that like level of cert- conversation meaning with the customer the way that you service the demand and w- the way you service the customers needs um, is it is it such a big differentiator and I think in doing that well um, the the best of the the DMVB or d2c brands have have carved out sort of a, uh, a better you know um, path for growth uh, than what we've seen traditionally because in doing that and doing that well, you get to uphold all of the values of your brand and all of the intents of your brand. You know, as soon as you, you turn, even if you're, you're a personal, you have a personal brand, if you start to turn over elements of your personal brand to somebody else, you're immediately losing control of that element, you know, and you can trust someone to do something, um, or, or execute something to the highest degree, but it, it's never really going to quite meet your own standards. And I think a lot of ways. Um, And so, and it won't, it won't feel as authentic and, and that is coming from a first party. Um, And so I think that's, it's also something like hitting on that point of the relationship and path to the customer. That's just become so important in this business.
1: Yeah. And then um, as a software guy, I noticed I wasn't involved in this one, but you put together a uh, little bit of a tech stack and you called it DTC 3.0 tech stack. Um, So, you know, what, what are some of the elements? So, you know, here we are, it's 2020. um, And let's pretend, I guess, you were starting your own DNVB. What are some of the things that, that, you know, know, a a modern marketer is going to need in that tech stack that you think about?
0: Totally. Um, It's become sort of acronym soup. Uh, So I'm going to try to not step on that too many times. But, um, you know, really, when building a brand, you know whether it's from zero to ten or ten to twenty or, or beyond, um, I think it's helpful to like identify and organize around the heart of your business. And so, depending on how you're going to compete um, in the or go to market, you know you're going to want to set the roots of your tech stack or the, the core of your tech stack around a specific solution that's going to be, um, you know, able to scale for years and years, and it's going to help you um, out compete. Um, you know, the challengers that are out there. And so whether that's, you know, typically for a young brand, that's either um, an ERP system. Obviously there's, there's a platform conversation around Shopify or, or BigCommerce, or if you're going to build your own. Um, there's a CRM, customer uh, resource um, uh, management system. And there's these these pieces can be oriented in a number of different ways, and also have you know other um, tech, tech opportunities to sort of like plug into. And so there's just this you know almost an unlimited number of configurations that a brand can elect um, in 2020. Um, and like, I think it's interesting to dig into these different nuances, and it's interesting to understand. Um, how a brand selects their tech stack says a lot about how they intend on competing and creating value and in orienting their value chain um and so there's no there's no right answer and I think it's it's another one of those cases that's just a very nuanced discussion um but one that's changing you know and evolving quickly
1: yeah didn't uh bonobo famously insanely... Weren't they Magento and it fell over on them? Am I remembering that right?
0: That is exactly right. So the year before I started, I think it was 2010. um, Bonobos crashed on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and I think that's just a great example of you know how far we've come, right? Like Bonobos had two distinct offices, so they have one office in New York and one office in Palo Alto. So there's an entire tech office that was building proprietary front-end technology for Bonobos and, and some other data science projects. And then you had an entire organization built around building a retail brand. And, you know, those were, that's how we sort of, like, built a brand in, in, you know, 2007 through 13. And ultimately, Bonobos, even their solution beyond Magento was to build on, on um, spree commerce. And so in, Shopify existed during that time frame, but there was this sort of notion that if you wanted to build an enterprise scale, you know, massive brand that ultimately Shopify wasn't going to be able to scale with those brands. And it, of course, now we look at that and say that was a terrible decision and it cost a, these brands a lot of money and a lot of time and resources. But that's the, that's the distance that we've traveled um, in terms of technology. One thing I will say is, you know, now that we've outsourced all of this technology and we're there's all these plug and play solutions, but... It, you know, you're still spending a lot on technology is you know, their options are great. But, um, I think that in the industry, there's, there's sort of like we, we, the fog of war of sort of like needing all of the best pieces to orient a tech stack, but ultimately brands would probably be better served, you know, just focusing again on what they need to, uh, to, to compete uniquely in the world.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I want to jump in on a couple of questions here, but, uh, before I do, um, One of the things you called out in the tech stack, you called a PLM. And uh, Scott and I were debating a little bit what you meant by that. uh,
0: For at least in my terms, it's a product lifecycle management. Ah, okay. Um, We were both wrong, for the record. (laughs) (laughs) Everything that a brand develops and creates and designs, you sort of would go into the PLM system and that helps link your vendors to your sort of like main stack, your ERP and whatnot. It's the conduit Of information and and capturing all of that creativity um, and and putting it into a system. I'm I'm curious to know what you guys thought it meant.
2: Well, Scott (laughs) assumed you made a typo and meant uh, product information management, PIM, because you uh, you have an icon for each thing, and it was like three three T-shirts for the 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 product life cycle management. Um, And I was guessing potentially you meant product listing management, so like a PIM that could syndicate content to multiple uh, destinations or marketplaces.
0: No, that was the sort of like upstream orientation there. And then I did have the product information management system, which I didn't originally, but someone brought it up to me. So Ah, um, I'm glad that was added for sure.
2: So it's funny because you, you kind of highlighted, um, that, uh, Hey, even though there are a lot of, um, more accessible plug and play tools in, in all of these categories today, uh, you, you, you know you you go out and acquire and implement a full stack of these things, and there's a lot of complication uh there frankly are a lot of potential data silos and integration projects and um, and pretty quickly you you rack up a uh, pretty high cost of ownership and technical debt um, the, the the in the enterprise world, the debate we used to always have was best in class versus pre-integrated suite right and it it feels like that's still playing out for these re- relatively young companies i mean do you go out and buy the trendy version of each one of these point solutions and then you you have to hire a technical team to integrate all of them or can you live with the oms that shopify gives you or the payment that shopify gives you or you know you know there are some other like pretty heavily integrated stacks like NetSuite or something like that
0: totally uh, i think it's like i mentioned it it's sort of is um, it's a decision that's based on where you where you're at and where you want to go um, in terms of the scale of the business. But I have been seeing more and more that you know brands can travel a lot further than they used to on a much lighter tech stack, um, and a lot of these other elements don't necessarily need to be integrated until much further down the line. But again, it's it's such a difficult um, needle to thread because. You, like we just spent a good amount of time talking about how important the path to the customer is, and owning that first-party data and being able to synthesize it and owning it and really capturing rich data throughout, you know the tech stack exists to sort of organize and, and be a tool to to harmonize all of that data and and actually operationalize it. And you know it, when you start to say, well, we're not going to do this or we're not going to do that, it, it's a conscious decision that you're not going to have that functionality and and someone another brand or another business may have that. It may have better you know, visibility into what um, is happening in their business. And that's just a you know, challenge that brand, brands have to live with um, because you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you're operating on a salary cap, not a salary cap, but like a, a spend cap, a budget. Um, and you, know, um, you have to make those trade-offs and decisions because um, you know, money runs out before
1: opportunity does. Yeah, there's probably a life cycle here where you kind of have, you know, you're you're born and you're kind of in that, you know, that infant kind of under 5 million run rate. And then, you know, there's a certain tech stack and then you get to 10 to 20 and then you have to add some other stuff. And then, you know, 100, 200, 400, there, there's, there's a lot more part to the stack you have to kind of throw in there.
0: Yeah, there's a, I think there's a couple of like critical elements before brands start to like get too heavyweight with technology. And what, one of those being, Foundations of data, so structured data, and making sure you you know you have an understanding of how your your data is coming together, um, and then two is really you know, a lot of these companies are still figuring out how you know they're going to build their business and figuring out what channels to play in, how you know what products to build, etc. And you know as that journey from adolescence into to sort of like teenager and, and adult stage happens you really have to nail down the, the process of how you operate your business end to end. And I think too often brands don't have those two boxes checked before they, you know, start to like invest in some of this heavier weight technology. And, and I think you guys have probably seen it. If you try to stand some of those things up on really shoddy data, it's just, it's not a successful um, cocktail that you're building. Uh, so it's definitely one where the onus should really be on on strong foundations um, before brands get to you over their heads, I would say.
1: Yeah. And uh, let me ask the converse. So, so you've been at tons of these brands and and advised a bunch. What, what's, what do people get wrong? Is it that they don't get attribution? They're not, they don't have rich enough product data. Is it customer data? Is it mobile is wrong? Where, where do you, where do you find people kind of miss the mark um, as they're building these brands?
0: I think the biggest, you know, evolution in the industry and the biggest opportunity has been, um, you know, linking customer like actual pro- like order level transaction. What are we actually selling and who are we selling it to? And it sounds really simple, but in a lot of ways, you know, at some of these brands, the, the practice has been, has been more siloed than it needs to. So a lot of what I've sort of like worked on is, is how do we bridge the gap between marketing, creative, you know, merchandising, um, supply chain operations, like how do we bring that group together, operate in a way that, you know, um, doesn't let these, the, this data sort of like operate in silos or, or um, accumulate in silos. We need to be able to like build the the view of the entire um, customer journey and then, and the product that supports it. So um, I think that's sort of been the biggest, you know, opportunity for direct to consumer brands is, is really tightening that link between marketing um, and operation slash, you know, product. Um, and I draw upon, you know, like back in the Michael Kors days, when you were in a legacy brand, the, the two, the marketing team and the, the merchandising team were on different floors of the building and, you know, rarely interacted at sort of anything below a leadership level. And so it's, it's, really that's a fundamental swing that we've seen in the retail business is that, you know, bring those, uh, bridging the gap between those two functions.
2: That, that totally makes sense. Um, I wanted to pivot off of the tech stack, uh, a little bit, uh, like you, obviously you're, uh, a good advocate for, for sort of digitally native brands and and you've worked for a, a number of them, uh, feels like the the public narrative on them has has shifted a lot lately like it used to be like oh they're the future they're the up and comers like this is you know the next wave of everything um and more recently if uh you know you're starting to hear like uh yeah you know maybe that trend has kind of petered out like maybe it's run its course um and so i'm i'm i, I, per, I don't know like uh i, I have i'm a mixed feelings but like where do you stand do you feel like DMVB is mostly played out, and you know, just wasn't able to achieve scale, and and uh, you know, was interesting, but but not a game changer. Or is it still early innings, and and there's a a, a significant chance for DMVBs to change the world?
0: I, I think we're still very much in the early innings. Um, I think the you know, like I mentioned before, I think brands um, are seeking gross margin and seeking oxygen to continue to grow. And I think there's, from a pure play perspective, it's it's challenging. It's a challenging environment for uh, digitally native brands, but I do think that you know the this the shift in consumer behavior towards e-commerce is is loosening some of that and creating some you know uh, competitive advantages for brands that are that are really communicating digitally as their main platform with customers. So I think you know, and then you also have technology like Shopify and, and some other elements that. Are enabling um, these businesses to you know, start up with a lot less capital and and really like reach a certain level of success um, taking you know less investment. So I think we're still in the early innings, um, and I, I also think that there's going to be continued innovation in the way in which you know brands reach customers. Like right now, we've got um, you know a couple of very congested channels. You know, those being Facebook, Instagram, Google. Um, in terms of like creating that spark and that you know interest and the awareness of a brand and, and discovery of a product, um, and I do foresee you know there's just by by force of like the, the size of the digital prize, um, I think that some of those things are going to become unstuck for direct to consumer brands. And then I also think that you know um, branding is going to evolve or is evolving, and creative is evolving. And product will continue to elevate um, and, and iterate, you know, physical product, I mean, and innovate. Um, and I think if we can bring those elements together, DNVB and D2C is going to have a really great future. Um, and what I love about it is, you know, everyone's trying to move to this model. Like, not everyone, but a large share of brands are, are at least interested or testing like we talked about earlier. And so there's there's definitely smoke there. We just have to figure out the right formula, bring it together, and bring it together in a way that um, is efficient and allows these brands to thrive and continue to grow profitably um, and reach a certain scale. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I could totally see that. Do you happen to be familiar? There's a construct that Gardner invented called the Gardner Hype Cycle. I'm not familiar. Yeah. So uh, it it's uh, really cool, and it's shocking how many things tend to fit this curve, but essentially... What what Gardner hypothesized, like mainly around technology innovations, a long time ago, was uh, new stuff is always getting invented, and when it's new, it almost always gets overhyped, and the like, the utility of it, like that is promised, wildly exceeds what it could actually deliver. Um, and so Gardner's premise was eventually every new trend or technology reaches what they call. The peak of inflated expectations. So they draw this curve, and it, it has this initial like huge spike, and at the top of it, you're at the peak of inflated expectations. And part of the reason I like the Gardner hype cycle is because of these funny names. So then what happens is you, the technology, you know, uh, it becomes apparent the technology isn't going to deliver... The those over uh, those inflated expectations, and so the technology starts to drop down the slope, and they call this downslope the trough of disillusionment. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, you know, so pick anything—artificial uh, intelligence, right? Like I would argue, it's probably right at the peak of inflated expectations right now. And uh, two years from, like, there was a time when QR codes were super overhyped, and everyone's talking about them, and like they're going to cure cancer. Uh, So then QR codes fall into the trough of disillusionment. Hey, they didn't cure cancer. Uh, People were totally wrong. They were overhyped. This is lame. Um, But eventually these products mature and they climb out of the trough of disillusionment into this area that that Gardner calls the slope of enlightenment, where they eventually achieve this plateau of productivity, where they kind of deliver commensurate value for what they are. Um, And so... Gardner pick all these different categories and they map all the trends in this category on the, on these hype cycles. Um, and when you see some of them, like it totally makes sense. Like, you know, QR codes got wildly overhyped. They dropped in the trough of disillusionment. Guess what's happening right now? Like QR codes are, are you know, reasonably productive for a variety of use cases. Um, and uh, that was maybe way too much work to explain it. But uh, to me, DNVBs like are perfectly following the hype cycle as well. Like there, there was yeah, a t- peak when they yeah. were overpromising, and they may be starting to drop into a trough of disillusionment, but that by no means means that there's not a plateau of productivity in their future.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally right. I think when we look back um, at some of the brands that maybe have driven some of the, like the collective disillusionment in DMVB, um, one, we're judging a brand that's still very young. Right, and we we look at uh, a Michael Coors, I'll drop him now and again. You know, they we went through the IPO in 2011. Coors was bankrupt, you know, in the in the 80s, and um, had this tremendous run of success. Um, And there's other stories that are out there, right, of like businesses and and types of business models that have gone through you know um, growth and contraction, et cetera. And so we're one we're we're judging the business, um, the opportunity that exists in the NBD in a very early inning of its development, um, not the terminal point. Um, and two, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of learning and, and being on the leading edge that has happened over the last 15 years, um, or so with respect to how to, you know, how to do this, uh, you know, how to build the uh, railroads and infrastructure and all of this kind of stuff to access customers, to be able to grow and scale. And I think particularly on that end, um, on the side of technology, on the side of supply chain, on the side of infrastructure, we're still, and then on the side of technology, we're still very, very young. And those those types of, um, you know, uh, innovation with that in terms of picks and shovels, etc., is really going to drive a, a tremendous amount of growth and opportunity for digitally native brands in, in a, on a much more efficient scale. So, um, I think that's absolutely right.
1: Yeah, this is a good time to make a a big announcement. Uh, Jason, because he's a big believer in in where we are on the hype cycle, he is going to release a mattress. And it's going to be the retail, Retail Geek DNVB Mattress because we don't have enough DNVB mattress companies. Right, Jason?
2: Absolutely. And what's going to be unique about this mattress is it's actually going to fit in a box and I can ship it right to your house. But what if you don't like it? Can you return it? Uh, you totally can. There's a no questions asked, thirty second guara- uh, uh, money back guarantee. Awesome. You're you're innovating again. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I work with a lot of
1: startups, and one of the things that that comes up a lot is what's the addressable market of all these brands going direct. Um, and I went through this with Advisor where you know, in the early days, people would say, well, well, what's the addressable market? And I was like, retail? And they would laugh at me. So then I had to kind of like show, well, you know, here's this magazine called Internet Retailer, and they have the IR 500, and then they did the IR 1000, and there's 1000 companies, and here's their sales. And, and you know, then we can extrapolate from there, this many number of companies, etc. Um, have you ever thought, like, what is the addressable market of, of all these, these brands that are coming up?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think eMarketer put out a survey or a study this year that was uh, suggested that direct-to-consumer brands were going to do about $18 billion, um, in revenue. Now, that this was released early in the year, so my assumption is that that's going to get blown away um, in terms of the, the expectations for the industry this year. And then we think about, as you mentioned, total retail, if we exclude automotive um, and we exclude restaurants, that's about $3.8 billion. And so, direct to consumer right now as a penetration to retail is less than half a percent, um, percentage point. And
1: 3.8 it, trillion,
0: oh, 3.8 trillion. Sorry yeah, thank yeah. You for correcting. Yep. Um, and so when I think about the opportunity I, over the next 10 years, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that we get to 10% direct to consumer. Um, and you know, at 10%, obviously you're doing for, uh, you know, $400 billion, um, in, in revenue. And I think, you know, the path to get there is everything that I just mentioned around uh, unlocking the efficiencies at scale. Um, And I think the only guardrail that I would meaningfully put against the ultimate growth of direct consumer as share of market is um, just the the fundamental economics of selling, uh, you know, e-commerce. When you include costs of goods sold and you include all of the variable costs of doing business and fulfilling uh, each order, you know, it gets you squeeze out a lot of the profit and opportunity, um, and so I have sort of this thesis around you know average order value and how that impacts the viability of pure play e-commerce. Obviously, the higher you go with respect to average order value, the more margin you're creating, even if the rate is lower. Um, and so, you know, if I think there's going to be a tension or a ceiling with low AOV products. That'll that'll continue to be dominated by the Amazons and the WalMarts of the world that really have already built a lot of this efficiency that I'm that I'm talking about. That's really inaccessible for each individual brand as we think about that brand growing its own business.
1: Okay, yeah. So, so how about this thought experiment? So, so if we were on a whiteboard, I'd draw a big circle and that would be retail, and that's three point eight trillion. And then I would draw a circle inside of there, and that's that's DTC today, and I put it inside because everything sold at retail is effectively what we're calling a brand. And I should have said this at the top of the show we we loosely use the word brand to being you know a manufacturer of of goods. Um, sometimes people get confused. Like in our Twitter conversation, someone's like, "Well, where does Macy's fit in this?" And we're like, "Well, that's that's a retailer, not a brand." And they they didn't kind of get the the manufacturer versus retailer kind of, kind of differential there. Um, But anyway, hopefully people were following along with that. Do you you agree with that? And then that bubble inside is going to get bigger and hit some terminal velocity to your point. Is is that kind of how you think about it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's totally right. I think there's, it's, it's easy to get tripped up on that terminology. Um, But I think that divide between retailer and marketplace is, is accurate. Um, And and I do, I just think, you know, at some point, um, when you think about the most efficient avenue for growth for some brands, it's going to be scaling offline versus continuing to scale online. Um, and that we've already seen that, right? We've seen it with um, Harry's going to Target and many, many others. Bonobos going to Nordstrom back in the day. Um, and so we'll continue to see that, you know, just as oxygen air gets a little bit thin, as you continue to grow. Um, And you find a path where you can find more oxygen and more scale and more distribution brands will, will continue to do that. Then the question becomes, when do we, you know, do we still call them direct to consumer as we talked about, but um, that's where I see that the ceiling and the the cutoff um, taking place. Um, And, but I think if you're, you know, you're selling over a certain price point, let's just call it $75 uh, from an AOV perspective. I I do think that there's a lot of runway with um, pure play e-commerce and continuing to scale brands. And it's good again I do believe just based on where the world is going and where commerce is going that it, um, it should get easier uh, rather than more difficult you know um, but uh, that's sort of where where I where I see things netting out over time
2: that that makes sense uh side note on the the e marketer stat you you quoted um I'm sensitive to this because i'm I'm way over published on the internet but that, that, uh, e-marketer report on D2C will always stand out to me because there's a, a paragraph in it about, um, what a failure Peloton is, <laughs> which so isn't whole, that, oops. yeah, it hasn't aged particularly well. Um, but, uh, I, I'm curious though, uh, to talk about the, the complete other end of the brand life cycle for a min- minute, because it's, it's made the news a lot, um. There are a bunch of brands that were storied brands, you know, had huge consumer adoption, made, made people a ton of money, um, and in recent times have, like, lost customer interest, gone bankrupt, and in most cases been acquired by Simon Malls. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious if you're following that trend and if you think there's, you know, anything interesting, like, do those brands have a second life with Simon, or does Simon reconstitute them and spin them off, or is that just, you know, where where uh you know former glorious brands go to die totally i i i've been really like sort of digging in on this particular topic because as you mentioned
0: these are you know these are brands that i grew up with that um you know part of my sort of journey and story so just i have like an affinity to these these brands are very curious as to where their final destination will be um and so you basically, and I don't have any, you know, knowledge other than what I've gathered. Um, so this is really more of my perspective on it um, as an outsider. But you've got Authentic Brands Group, um, which has been working with Simon in most cases, and sometimes they've been working independently to roll up um, these these brands and these properties. And as you mentioned, a lot of them, like Aeropostale, Nautica, Brooks Brothers, Forever 21, Sports Illustrated. These are brands like Brooks Brothers was founded in 1818. Sports Illustrated has been around since 1954, so these are brands that are have a richness in terms of you know um, our culture, American culture, richness in terms of their their history and their origin story. And I think what we've seen and kind of ties in with the direct to consumer and digitally native movement is that it takes a long time to build a meaningful brand. You know, it really is a brick by brick process of building that brand. So you don't knock all those bricks down in one day. Sure, the business can suffer. And in some cases, they can go through a bankruptcy and come out on the other side. But my view of this is that you know, Simon and Authentic's brand, Authentic brand group are buying these properties for what you know, seems to some people as like, okay, you're just throwing money away. But I look at it as, in many cases, a tremendous value, especially if we can gather enough of them within sort of our brand portfolio. And then, you know, you've got a mall or the largest mall owner in the country operating 108 malls and 67 outlets. And so you've got a distribution network for all that product. And so we just, you know, kind of we went through the taxonomy of brands and talked about distribution owned versus uh, third party. Now this isn't going to be owned because obviously there's, you know, there's a, there's a relationship here and there's rent to be paid and et cetera. But when you look at it at a very high level across those businesses, they're sort of verticalizing and rolling up all of these brands. Um, and what they're seeking, I think, is, you know, if we can move some of these brands through some of our channels, we can collectively, you know, revive these brands. We can invest in these brands. We can, you know, generate more revenue and margin off of these brands. Um, and they're, you know, they're fine with, I would, I would say, I would guess they're fine with transa- like the actual volume that the brands are going to do um, lowering. Because, you know, again, they have that sort of like networked relationship um, where they're really focused around how do we make these the pieces fit? And then, you know, they're also um, acquiring, you know, they bought Sports Illustrated, as I mentioned. And so they have the license there and they've got a media property to distribute some of these content, um, some of the content and some of these brands. So I think it's, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about malls and being over retailed and over, you know, square foot in the United States, which... I don't disagree with, but I do think, you know, sometimes the opportunity swimming in the other direction is easier to get to than, um, you know, going the direct to consumer path. So certainly at the scale that they're trying to do it, it seems um, like there's a big opportunity there.
2: Yeah. I I hope that uh, a number of these brands do earn another act. Uh, I mean, I think we're all desperate for Toys R Us to come back which Absolutely. Does, doesn't seem <laughs> some, seem super strong at the, at the moment. One fun irony, though, I feel like, of Simon acquiring a bunch of these brands is, uh, you know, in all the antitrust talks and hearings, one of the things that always comes up is uh, Amazon is, the, is playing the game and they're the referee. Um, and I, I feel like uh, it's going to be funny to see the shocked look on a bunch of senators' faces when they find out that the Brooks Brothers suit that they're wearing is also the referee and playing the game at the mall.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this sort of plays out. And it's, you know, as someone who's just, you know, a passionate um, follower of the retail industry and someone who's been in the industry for a while, these are the types of things that are just so interesting to me because, you know, it's a really unique set of circumstances and one I don't think we've necessarily seen at this scale before. And so how this plays out, I actually think is going to have a meaningful you know, impact on physical retail and, you know, brands opening stores and malls. Um, so there's just quite a bit um, at stake for the American consumer here and for these brands um, and retail in general.
1: Yeah, that that's uh, that kind of brings me to the end game. So the, you guys have a mall there. Jason, remember the name of it? It's almost like...
2: Oh, uh, mall. in Austin? Uh, the yeah. domain.
1: Yeah. The domain, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so we actually went to a show and walked through there and we did a whole episode just kind of walking through. And, you know, that's a really cool experience. You get these really deep brand experiences. But then online, you know, if if I kind of think through the end game here, it's a really weird customer experience. Do we just go to social media and Google and we search for brands and find them and then we have the Casper experience, the Bonobos experience? Or do you think at some point, there's an aggregation of these things online that you know makes them have a better uh, discovery mechanism, unified checkout, and that kind of thing. And and you know where where do you see that going, uh, you know, down the road?
0: Yeah, I think it's um, it's a really good question, and one I've spent a lot of time sort of trying to unpack. Um, I think the challenge with you know like a roll-up or or a marketplace of direct to consumer brands is we start to mute what makes them great in a lot of cases, which is, you know, like the origin story, the authentic mission, the purpose, you know, the the energy and the creativity of the brand and the product. Um, And so if you start to build a marketplace around that, then inherently the marketplace becomes the conversation and not necessarily the the uniqueness of of the story um, of a a specific brand. And so what I would expect is, and then sorry, on the flip side of that, you've, you've got you know, sort of the strength in numbers conversation and the economies of scale of actually rolling up some of these brands, if you actually, you know, did do that, um, on the, on the, certainly on the back end of the operation. And so I would expect we see sort of like smaller, either holding companies or smaller, uh, you know, conglomerations or smaller acquisitions that, you know, create these little pods of direct to consumer and digitally native brands that are anchored around an individual, around a customer and their, and their sort of a niche, their preference set. Um, and I think we're starting to see some of that already, um, that uh, where brands are starting to, to, to buddy up or even, you know, move together or partner together, cross-pollinate, et cetera, um, around these particular lifestyles or, or um, preferences. I just don't see, like, um, unless, you know, I, I actually was sort of trumpeting that Shopify should do something like this a while ago, um, but that doesn't seem to be their game. I feel like they're probably the one that could be the, become the D to C mall. Um, but they, they haven't shown their cards yet with respect to any intent to do that.
2: Yeah. The Jason, what do you think? So you're saying the shop, uh, app is not a turnkey D to (laughs) C mall. No,
0: it is very good at telling me when my packages are going to arrive though. So I appreciate that.
2: Yeah. Uh, and the, the answer this year, by the way, is your is when your (laughs) packages are going (laughs) to arrive because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, uh, it I mean, who knows how how it's all going to end. Um the I don't personally see that being the in game for Shopify to become that that mall. I just think it's Shopify is amazing at a bunch of things. Um and uh I just think uh building uh, D to C traffic is not something that they've done at all or have any endemic advantage in doing, and that's what you would really like that that's the hardest thing to get to build a D to C uh, mall. It's not the, um, the sellers, it's the consumers. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, as a consumer, I, I want a discovery
1: vehicle because I didn't know about that italic one until I just kind of saw people talking about it on Twitter and, you know, it, it feels like there's this huge opportunity to be the discovery engine for people interested in this category. And, you know, right now people just kind of, it's just word of mouth. You just really, or, you know, a store or something, you don't, it's really hard to discover these things.
0: Yeah. There's been a, there's been a couple that have popped up. I mean, their shop I think is trying to make a move into this sort of space of being like a, a trusted, you know, source for recommendations. And then, on the, I would characterize it probably unfairly on the more like consumer reports side of things, maybe dating myself with that reference. But, um, you know, you've got thing testing, um, which has really been, done a great job of digging into D2C brands and, and um, really doing like unboxing and product reviews and all that kind of stuff. Um, so those, those are some of the resources that we're starting to see. I think it's just, you know, it's still the search for breaking up the duopoly or the, you know, the ownership that Facebook, Instagram, and Google have over attention and eyeballs—you know—until we get you know a meaningful crack in that armor, um, it's still going to be really difficult to make uh, direct to consumer discoverable outside of those channels. Um, and that's where I think physical retail, and that's where I think you know um, wholesale and all of those other channels come into play because there's still a, a large portion of individuals like lives, you know, assuming that we get back to some degree of normalcy where, you know, we're doing things in, um, you know, in three dimensions, we're doing things in public, we're doing things socially. And, you know, so I think um, a, a lot, there's a lot of uh, tension with how we're going to make direct consumer more discoverable and get in front of more people.
2: Yeah. Uh, I gotta be honest. I, I am sure something is going to come along to disrupt it. Like I think it's less likely to look like a a D2C version of a search engine or a catalog or you know sort of a traditional mall. Like I you know I don't think it's going to I'm not a big fan of like the neighborhood goods of the world and the um those kind of D2C aggregators or or Tim Armstrong's D2X and all those sorts of things. Uh, I think it's going to be something that's more out of the box, right? So if I had to Bet. I have no idea what it'll be, but if I had to bet right now, I would be more likely to put money on something like uh, live streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe yep. it's TikTok that, you know, probably not Oracle TikTok, but but uh, some some future iteration of TikTok that that's more likely to, to disrupt Amazon as the sort of uh, D2C discovery vehicle.
0: I wholeheartedly agree there. I mean, I think if you look at the legacy of um, QVC and HSN – these are like massive businesses that could drive tremendous amount of, you know, attention and revenue. And, and, you know, I think that's absolutely a place that's ripe. Um, it's just, you know, uh, how do you get enough energy and get enough, um, movement behind it to get onto the platform? Um, I think that's the hardest part is just, you know, acquiring and building enough, um, of a network effect to make that valuable for consumers. Yeah. And for brands.
2: Yeah. Uh, e- uh, It's hard to say and even harder to do. So I think you're right. (laughs) Um, But uh, Nate, I think that's going to be a great place uh, for us to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time as always. If you enjoyed this episode, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on Amazon.
1: Nate. um, Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. This is a great conversation. We could have gone another hour, but I know uh, people need to go to sleep and stuff. Um, if folks want to learn more about your your thought leadership you put out there and whatnot, what, what are some of the best places for them to find you?
0: Yeah, really the only sort of social channel I have um, is on Twitter. You can follow me at at digitally native with no E on the end. Um, <laughs> and uh, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. This has been really fun.
1: Yeah, why well, no E? Just write off uh, characters. <laughs>
0: No, actually, there is a digitally native with an E who has uh, no followers and has never tweeted. Oh. Um, and so <laughs> I'm patiently waiting for uh, Twitter to clean that out and hopefully be able to take over that territory.
2: Jack, if you're listening, help us out here. <laughs> <laughs> you, you say that like there's a chance he's not listening. Well,
1: you know, he's busy. He could be in Africa or working on Square tonight or something.
2: Yeah, one of I heard he has a couple of gigs, so good point. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks very much for the time, Nate. And until next time, happy commercing.
0: You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit
1: www.jasonandscott.com.